from high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Friday, October 6th. Moab residents may have noticed two new pieces of public art downtown. Last weekend, artist Chip Thomas installed murals outside of the Moab Museum and the Grand County Travel Council building. Both murals are enlarged black and white photos from the museum's archive of historic Moab characters. The photo on the Travel Council building is of Charlie Glass, a black cowboy who lived in Moab in the early 1900s. This is Chip Thomas describing the photo. There's an image of Mr. Glass seated in a chair. It looks like it might be, I'm going to assume it's outside his home, which is not necessarily a log cabin, but it is split timber. seems to be a beautiful home, actually, but it's humble. And to his right is a woman, a beautiful African-American young woman who is standing wearing a dress. I love just the sense of comfort they display in this image from 1937. Can you talk about why you chose the image? Yeah, well, so (laughs) this is something I've been trying to work through just for myself, you know. As an African-American man, originally from North Carolina, who spent 36 years working as a physician on the Navajo Nation, who has good relationships with the folks in my community there, I just wondered more about the history of African-Americans here in the Southwest and what their relationships were like with Native people as well as with Anglos. I um, gravitated to a very handsome, picturesque man by the name of Charlie Glass. Thomas recently retired from his job as a physician and now lives in Flagstaff, Arizona. But while he was working in the clinic on the Navajo Nation, he was also taking photos of people in the community. He then started printing his photos onto large pieces of paper and pasting them onto abandoned buildings across the reservation. He started that work over a decade ago, and since then, he's put up murals all across the Southwest, including some near Moab. The photo murals at Tacos La Pasadita, the taco truck in Green River, are also by Thomas. On the Charlie Glass mural, there's a quote from a 1937 newspaper article that says, Cattlemen, former employers, and acquaintances all agreed that fiction could produce no more colorful nor picturesque a character than Glass. It wasn't Thomas's first choice for a quote, though. He wanted to include words that Charlie Glass actually said. One of the things that I find interesting about the documentation, the recording of some of their early settlers here is there may be imagery of them, but there's not always quotes from them. We don't always get to hear their voice, but there's a nice exception to that. There's a writer who interviewed Charlie Glass. The original quote he proposed to the county was published in the Times Independent in 1932. It says, Charles Glass, Jones and Cunningham's top cowhand is about the most optimistic person we have met for some time. He was out the other day with cattle for shipment. He states the depression has not bothered him in the least. Says he was born during a depression and that there has been one hanging over him ever since. He claims that in the beginning all men were supposed to be equal and that this so-called depression is nothing more or less than an equalizer and is just what the country needed. Those are beautiful and insightful words. You know, all of us are created equal. The depression brought everyone down to the same level. It was an opportunity for us all to rise together. In a county commission meeting on September 5th, County Commissioner Mike McCurdy objected to the quote in the artist's proposal. In plainer terms, sounds like in order for people to be equal, people need to be poor. The current wording on the mural is off-putting in my eyes. 
County Commissioner Bill Winfield agreed with McCurdy. In order for me to vote for this mural, the verbiage needs to be about the positive contributions Mr. Glass brought to the community, not the negative. This is McCurdy again, explaining his interpretation of the original quote. It was just the fact that someone that is making money or working towards it, uh, that you wouldn't be counted as, uh, as an equal if you made it. If you're not making it, you don't want to be left out. Like, you don't have the same equality that we all have. Uh, it goes the, uh, both ways. I mean, I feel it on the less money sense, but I could see it on the upper side of things, too. This is County Commission Chair Jacques Hadler. I, I personally don't find it off-putting at all. I think it's. I think it very much reflects the the time that Mr. Glass lived here and in his economic situation, and I'm comfortable with it. But he was outnumbered, and commissioners voted to reject the proposal. The county asked Thomas and Moab Arts, who sponsored the work, to choose different text. Sadly, there were people apparently who were offended by that language of Charlie Glass. And what I find fascinating about that is that the newspaper was willing to run Charlie Glass's words in the context of the Great Depression, about which he's speaking. But present day, (laughs) those words have been censored. For the other mural outside the museum, Thomas chose a photo from a 1956 parade celebrating the success of uranium mining in Moab. So the image that I chose shows three women. One seems to be the uranium queen in that she's wearing a mining helmet with an atom made of aluminum foil and probably pipe cleaners and a nice ball gown type dress with two attendants seated at either side but below her being driven by a man in a jeep back in 1956. That was the same year McCall's magazine published an article about Moab calling it the richest town in the USA. The photo and the quote didn't originally appear together. Thomas paired them for the mural. When it says richest town in the USA, is that a fact or a figure of speech? That is kind of a figure of speech. This is Mary Langworthy, public programs manager at the Moab Museum. Not actually maybe the richest town in the USA, but a booming town. A boom town, to be sure. During a presentation of his work last weekend, Thomas explained that as a physician, he'd worked with a lot of uranium miners who were suffering from the consequences of radiation exposure. All of this work that you've done with miners who have been affected by uranium mining, and then choosing this image that is sort of celebrating uranium in a way. It's like a very fun photo. It's very cheeky. Is it tongue-in-cheek? Like, what is I'm trying to rationalize this. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry that I didn't push harder for there to be more context about the consequences of uranium mining because just looking at the image alone, it doesn't necessarily challenge the viewer to explore the detrimental legacy of the mining. I mean, I think if anyone does know the history of uranium mining and the effects that it had on people of color especially, I think seeing that image, probably the stark contrast between what's going on in that image and the reality of what actually happened, that probably is powerful. Right, but sadly, I would postulate that most people don't know the history. (laughs) This is Langworthy again. The uranium one's really thought-provoking, right? It's, on one hand, really happy and celebratory, acknowledging that uranium made Moab very affluent, and also, I think, a little, a little bit subversive and makes you stop and think about what the cost of being the richest town in the USA is. And a lot of his other works across the West kind of delve into that. And I think this sort of is part of the larger constellation of uranium work 
that adds nuance and just depth to what uranium has meant to this region. And then can you talk a little bit about the Charlie Glass photo and anything that strikes you about that image? I think it kind of disrupts the popular expectation of what a cowboy looks like. And it is a very cowboy image, but not the person in all the Hollywood movies. What do you like about the Charlie Glass image? I like that it's kind of a normal scene. They're relaxed. And it just shows that like these black people were just a normal part of everyday life here. A lot of people even that live in Moab don't know that there was any kind of black presence here. Right. Yeah, yeah, it just puts them in, in a place of normalcy and seemingly acceptance. And I really wanted to push that narrative because, you know, it's easy, I think, for people of color to go into some of these Western communities now and be treated as if we have no agency. Yeah. When you say no agency, do you mean like no context in that place? Yeah. You know, it's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, what are you doing to Moab? This is, you know, an outdoors community and where that's celebrated. And the primary people who have the financial means of doing that are not necessarily people of color. So, yeah, I'm glad that I fought as hard as I did to get that Charlie Glass mural up. You can see photos of Thomas and his murals in today's show notes. Colorado continues to see the impacts of a bountiful snowpack last winter. One lingering effect? a bumper crop of fruit, which some are noticing across the state. In Telluride, KOTO's Gavin McGough finds the harvest season is an opportunity to store up with another winter on the way. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, he brings us this report. I'm at an undisclosed location. We'll just say somewhere down valley, outside of Placerville. I've pulled over under an unblemished blue sky as the sun is waning a little bit in the west. I'm catching all these shadows in the grass and in the trees to pick some apricots. In early September, as the summer and fall were beginning to greet each other in the mountain landscape, I heard a rumor of fruit trees down valley, just below Telluride, that were filling out with a bumper crop of apricots. Tipped off by a forager in the know, I drove 145 out of town one afternoon, pulled over alongside the road and the banks of the San Miguel River, and was greeted by old homestead trees planted and left long ago. And sure enough, ducking through long grass and through the mixture of shade and sun, I found their boughs decorated up and down with soft orange fruit, blushing pink where they've been growing in the sun and small enough to fit a half a dozen right in the palm of your hand. Within minutes, I've got a harvest, a whole bounty of small half-wild fruit. But what does one do with a bounty of apricots a whole bunch of fruit of any sort. I knew just who to call. Kathleen Morgan, a peripatetic fruit gatherer and a local advocate of all things pickled and preserved. Morgan says her vast knowledge of the local fruit landscape comes originally from the community. Word of mouth. 10, 12 years ago, I had a pickle and jam company. And by making 
product and being in the farmer's market, people would come up to me and say, oh my gosh, have you seen such and such tree? Have you gotten this fruit? Hey, would you come and pick my apple tree? Meeting these fellow enthusiasts, Morgan recalls, Open my eyes to all this fruit that's around us just a little bit below Telluride. In Telluride, you can get crab apples um, on a good year as long as there's not a freeze in the spring. And then people told me about the apricots in Placerville. And they only happen, obviously, on a good year, on a year where there's enough moisture and they don't get frozen. And I mean, they, they, they can get frozen in June and then there are no apricots. So this year is off the charts. This gorgeous outpouring of apricots is a special moment, a bounty fed by an enormous snowpack last winter and fruit that was spared a late deadly frost, then nursed all summer by the long days of sun. Faced with too much fruit to simply eat fresh, Morgan takes the season's bounty and puts it up for the long months to come. So say, for example, I'm making a peach sauce or peach apricot sauce or some applesauce, I'm going to cook that fruit down but I, and add some spice to it, but I want it at a good temperature. Again, not a rolling boil, but I want it at a good simmer. And then um, I use a metal funnel and put all my product into jars. When the jam is made and the jars are hot and full, it's time to preserve them. So I have a water bath that sits on two burners. It's rectangular. It comes out of the Amish community in Pennsylvania. And I heat up water to a simmer. You don't need a rolling boil. Then, depending on altitude, can size, and the product in the jars, Morgan lets them simmer for however long the recipe instructs. The heat kills bacteria and activates the seal on the jar. Involving scalding hot water, tongs moving slippery glass jars, and anxiety about bacteria, the process of canning can be intimidating, says Morgan. Yeah, people are definitely come to canning with a lot of fear that they're going to blow things up or kill people. All, all good fears to have. <laughs> <laughs> but a good recipe can go a long way. At the base, I have um, recipes that come from cooperative extensions. They're the most reliable source of scientifically based preservation methods. Um, and so, you know, people say, oh, I've got my great-grandmother's pickle recipe. I'm like, well, that's great, but let's look at what modern-day science tells us works. You can find information about your region's university extension office at extension.colostate.edu. Then, armed with a bounty of information and a bevy of fruit, you can stock your pantry all fall for the coming winter. For KOTO, this is Gavin McGough. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. A North Dakota state senator, his wife, and two of their children died Sunday night when the small plane they were traveling in crashed just north of Moab. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent speaks with Molly Marcello about the ongoing investigation into the crash. You know, the the cause of the crash is still unknown. It's being investigated uh, by a federal agency. And I do believe that the, the small private plane had been cleared to be safe for flying for the next eight to 10 years or something like that. And, you know, weather conditions were, were pretty stable Sunday night. I don't think there was any storm in the area. Um, so it's, it's still under investigation. The National Transportation Safety Board is continuing their investigation 
information, and they should have a preliminary report. Yeah, we're still awaiting that, and we'll definitely be doing more more coverage of this um, as more details emerge. This was a really tragic incident, especially for friends and relatives of this family, and also for our community. It sounds like it took a lot for first responders to respond to the scene. Absolutely. I mean, I was in town Sunday night. Anyone who was downtown, I'm sure, heard a ton of sirens going up north towards the airport, and definitely, you know, like thoughts and thanks going out to the first responders here who who do have to deal with incidents like this. They're truly horrible. What can you tell us about the North Dakota legislator who was killed in the crash? Yes, absolutely. Um, Doug Larson, he represented uh, Mandan, which is a town just across the river from Bismarck, which is the the state's capital. Um, He was described as self-employed and elected to the state Senate in 2021. And previously, Larson had served uh, 28 years in the North Dakota Army National Guard. Um, and actually, uh, according to another legislator who who released, you know, details after Larson's death, Larson had actually been in Scottsdale, Arizona to see off, I believe, his sister who was deploying herself for the armed services uh, just before the crash. So more information on this is in the Times Independent. Like you said, the paper is going to continue their coverage once any preliminary report is made public. There's one more article in the Times Independent um, we'd like to highlight. This continues, Sophia, your tax beat. <laughs> Tell us what's happening with taxes. Yeah, I'm just digging myself into a deeper and deeper hole every time I report on taxes. This article is about centrally assessed properties and centrally assessed property taxes. And the the headline reads that a a judgment on one of these properties actually just cost Grand County taxpayers $750,000. And there are more possible judgments on the way. Um, That happened because... Uh, a judge in a district court recently ruled that the state of Utah had overvalued a pipeline that runs through Grand County, requiring some property tax repayments from a variety of taxing entities, of course, not just in Grand County. Um, but I think centrally assessed properties are really interesting because they are kind of part of this contentious topic of property taxes we've been discussing so much in recent months, and they kind of fly under the radar in some ways. They're not assessed in the same way that local uh, businesses and, and residences are, are assessed. Okay, how are they assessed? They are assessed by the state. So the Utah State Tax Commission uh, basically comes in and assesses the value of these things, which are, you know, usually big pieces of infrastructure that cross county lines, like pipelines and electrical Mm -hmm. wires and things like that, utility lines. Um, The State Tax Commission basically says, okay, this property is worth this much. So taxing entities, you're allowed to collect exactly this much from from this pipeline or whatever. Um, So the county really has no say in it. Um, But some of these, you know, these properties are often owned by very large organizations with very deep pockets. And some of them frequently um, appeal their valuation and sometimes win those appeals and and get lower valuations. So this specific property, I looked at the Mid-America Pipeline, which runs through Grand County. They've actually appealed their valuation to the state for every year since 2016. And have they won every year since 2016? Uh, so far, the two years that they that have been ruled on, 2016 and 17, uh, the judge, I don't think, went as low as what, what they wanted their valuation to be, but did trim their valuation. And that's where that refund comes in from the, from the county. I should say, like, I, I think from what I've heard, the taxing entities have almost completely enough in reserves to be able to cover these repayments. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you're necessarily going to see like another tax on your taxes next year, I don't think. But Mm -hmm. it's it's hard for them. And it's also hard to plan ahead because, you know, I I spoke with Grand County Commissioner uh, Bill Winfield and 
there are so many outstanding appeals 2018 through 2023 um, that haven't been judged on yet. He's like, it's hard to for us to feel comfortable spending our property tax money because we don't actually know if we have that money yet because all mm. these appeals are still outstanding. So mm. he and the Utah Association of Counties are actually trying to, to reform the system, hopefully, by putting some bills in the Utah legislature next year. So they're looking at reforming this portion of Utah law. Did they have any examples of like what they want to see in the future? Absolutely. I think a big part of what the Utah Association of Counties is pushing for is uh, giving counties greater leeway to prepare for potential repayments and to spread these repayments out over multiple years just to help with budgeting and things like that. There are certain things that they're allowed to do for repayments, but they're often squished into one year. Um, so sometimes taxing entities will actually put what's called a judgment levy on taxpayers, which is like an extra tax specifically to repay these appeals. Oh, wow. But you can only do that in one year, so it can hit people really hard. So that's something they're trying to reform. And they also are asking for just like an overall review of, you know, how property taxes are kind of assessed throughout the state just to make sure that it is completely equitable. Um, you know, you spoke to Chris Kaufman, as you mentioned, Um, Grand County Treasurer. You also talked to Pat Wilson at the school district. Um, What did he have to say when it comes to Grand County schools? So he said, you know, and I should say the school district is itself its own taxing entity, and they got hit with the biggest repayment, you know, from all these tax entities. So they actually have to repay about $450,000 as a result of this judgment. Um, For him, you know, he says that they were able to plan for almost the entire repayment. So they were able to incorporate that into this year's budget. They're able to dip into reserving rainy day funds that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're largely okay, you know. But he said that it, it puts them in the mindset that they have to be extremely conservative budgeting for future mm-hmm. years because of these 2018 through 2023 appeals that are still sitting out there and could hit them at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, he also mentioned, you know, he used to work for the Severe School District in a different part of Utah, and at one point there, the school district got hit with a like a $2 million refund from a coal mine there. And that just knocked out their financial reserve. So Wilson has actually seen this happen in in multiple parts of Utah. So the school district and the county are taxing entities that are now being forced to repay due to this judgment. Any other taxing entities or just those two? Most of the taxing entities in Grand County are repaying some. So like the Mosquito Abatement District, Mm -hmm. the Cemetery District, the Fire District. But each of those entities is repaying less than $20,000, often less than $5,000. So it's really primarily the school district and the county that that pretty much got hit. So in this in this report, it doesn't seem like this burden is going to shift to taxpayers, at least right now. I think we're we're pretty safe on that. I, I do think there are enough reserves throughout these taxing entities to cover this judgment. And I know that they're very much taking into consideration with future budgets, but who knows what the future will hold. Sophia Fisher, reporter at The Times Independent. Find more stories at moabtimes.com. Southeast Utah is preparing for an influx of visitors next weekend traveling to view the annular solar eclipse. The, quote, ring of fire will be especially visible in San Juan County. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News speaks with Molly Marcello about San Juan's preparations. So an annular solar eclipse creates this ring of fire effect where we can see the moon in front of the sun, but it doesn't block it completely. And so you have this like ring of the sun's light coming out around the moon. And so it'll be visible for three to five minutes in certain areas across the state. But the closest ones to Moab are in Monticello, Bluff and Mexican Hat. And Mexican Hat is in the direct path of annularity. You talked to some folks in San Juan County who are expecting an influx of eclipse tourists. Yes. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to get an idea of 
what people are expecting and then also how visitors from Moab, like Moab locals who are traveling down there, what they can expect and how they can be like good visitors to the Mm -hmm. land. So Elaine Gisler, who is San Juan County's Director of Economic Development and Visitor Services, said that San Juan County has been preparing for the eclipse since January 2022. So for a really long time. Um, And she's expecting thousands of visitors. And so they've had conference calls with like emergency medical services and the sheriff's department, health department, road department, land managers. And so really this amount of visitors in a single weekend doesn't happen very often at all. And these are pretty rural towns in San Juan County. And so she's really been trying to make sure that people have enough resources to handle this kind of influx. Like hotel rooms have been booked out for months and the county also ordered hundreds of eclipse glasses last year. Is the county then going to be passing out these eclipse glasses to folks who are who are around? Yes, there's going to be a number of events where people can get eclipse glasses. Um, you can get them in Moab from our Grand County Public Library, which is great. But in San Juan County, there will be like a ring of fire fest at Gooseneck State Park in Mexican Hat, an eclipse festival at the Canyon Country Discovery Center in Monticello, a talk on how to safely view the solar eclipse at the Blanding Library on Friday night, and then there will also be star parties at the Bluff Community Center on Thursday and Friday night. Amazing. Do they expect like campsites to be booked out too and even less popular zones to be taken? Yeah, definitely. Um, Samira Crank, who is the Visit with Respect Program Director at the Bears Ears Partnership, she said the nonprofit has also been preparing a lot of eclipse messaging. So the National Monument is expecting a giant influx of visitors for people camping and then also recreating in the area after the eclipse is over. So really what Samira is trying to do is spread this messaging about how to still be a good steward of the land that people are going to be on. And there will be Visit with Respect ambassadors out in Bears Ears um, trying to have as much interaction with visitors as they can. Okay. And something else that she pointed out that's really important is that people are asking Eclipse viewers to be really aware of cultural sensitivities. So some tribes aren't allowed to view the eclipse, like the Navajo and Ute tribes don't look at the eclipse. So that includes viewing the eclipse in reflections, like on water or windows, and through photos. Hmm. So If you post any photos of the eclipse on social media, please put a warning before it so that people won't unassumingly view it. And that also means that parks located on the Navajo Nation, like Monument Valley, will be closed. So the eclipse is next weekend. It lasts for how long? So it depends on where you're going to be. So if you're in Mexican Hat, for example, it'll last almost five minutes. Um, But if you're kind of outside the direct path, it'll last for around three short window of time. More information on um, San Juan County's preparedness and also events around the eclipse are in this week's edition of the Moab Sun News. And there's more news that we want to highlight. This one takes us to Ken's Lake. Yeah. So as a lot of people know, there's been a health watch in effect since September 6th at Ken's Lake. And that was prompted when concerned citizens alerted the local health department about suspicious algae in the reservoir. Tests confirm the presence of a type of cyanobacteria that's sometimes known to produce toxins, although toxins weren't found to be present in any of the samples tested. But in any case, there was this health watch that was basically saying, like, don't swim in Ken's Lake, don't consume the water because the cyanobacteria might make you really sick. But on September 29th, health officials lifted that watch. Regular tests throughout September indicated that 
the cyanobacteria population was shrinking. And by the 29th, there was no longer any visible growth. This was the first algal bloom that was documented, right, by the health mm-hmm. department, as far as we know? Yes. At least at Ken's Lake. Yes, at Ken's Lake. A press release from the Utah Division of Wildlife on October 3rd warned that 23 water bodies in the state are still under harmful algal bloom advisories, mm-hmm. though none are in Grand or San Juan County. So this is happening kind of across the state, and it is definitely something that we are going to be looking out for when the weather gets warmer again. As you mentioned, this seems to be happening more frequently to different water bodies in our region. Do we know exactly why this happened at Ken's Lake? So harmful algal blooms aren't super well understood, and so we can guess. And I think the best guess is that somehow there are more nutrients in Ken's Lake. And Mm -hmm. so this high nutrient content in a water body can be caused a lot of times by runoff. And so like any runoff that runs in nutrients from the soil, like phosphorus, that can contaminate a water body and Mm -hmm. then make these blooms and this algae more likely to happen. Across the entire country, people are dealing with harmful algal blooms and I think there's still not really a direct answer for what you can do. Um, Some places look into like land management practices. I studied harmful algal blooms in upstate New York and that was a really big question of how do we get farms away from runoff? Mm -hmm. You know maybe it's people's septic tanks and so for now at Ken's Lake we're just kind of watching to see what happens, but there's no direct answer. You studied harmful algal blooms in upstate New York, so you were a little bit more familiar with this topic before you wrote about it. Yeah, I actually think they're really fascinating. (laughs) Cyanobacteria is one of the things that created our atmosphere, and so it's this incredibly old creature that is present in pretty much every fresh water body in the entire globe. And so there's always this potential that it'll bloom and become this toxin um, in every lake across the entire country and across the entire world. Just kind of depends on the warmer temperatures and the high nutrients. This particular cyanobacteria at Ken's Lake, did it ever become toxic or was just the potential to become toxic? So it was just the potential to become toxic. So toxins weren't found to be present in any of the samples tested. But when we first covered this at the beginning of September, Rachel Fixen talked to a woman whose dog got pretty sick Mm -hmm. after playing at Ken's Lake. Um, And so it's kind of like we have these observational toxin reports, Mm -hmm. but none of the tests had actually passed this threshold of concern. With the temperatures dropping, I'm assuming that they don't expect the bloom to return at least this season. Right, exactly. The September 29th update from the Division of Water Quality said that samples from Ken's Lake had been below the recreational advisory threshold levels for two weeks. So the lake is very safe. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Find more stories at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU community-powered radio.